0: Okay, welcome everyone, finally, back to Didactic Mind, episode 83, Scattering of the Ashes. Very warm welcome to all of my long-suffering and rather patient listeners. Very welcome to my uh, readers from the site. Very good to have you back, as always. Uh, I know this is a long-overdue podcast, and the reason it is long-overdue is basically because I've just been... Kind of busy uh, the last few weeks with chilling out, relaxing, <laughs> and also with uh, a whole bunch of tasks that I had to get done uh, in terms of visas and buying things and shopping for stuff. And uh, yeah, it's all been kind of crazy last uh, last two or three weeks. Uh, generally very pleasant though. Uh, it's good to be good to have some time off after a very very long time, basically working at a pretty breakneck pace. So, at any rate, um, a lot has happened over the last 3-4 weeks since I last uploaded a podcast. It has been a very, very turbulent and challenging time. And in these times, it's becoming very clear that alternative points of view will no longer be tolerated. So, if you're in a position like me, where you're trying to get across new ideas and new philosophies that uh, challenge the orthodoxy, then you're going to need a way to distribute those ideas carefully and quietly, and you don't want to be pinged by the powers that be, you don't want to be found. People like me have to say what we say in secret, under assumed identities. Now it's not that hard if you're really, really, really interested to figure out who I am, because Honestly, you can find out if you're um, if you're of a of an inquisitive mind. But it is still necessary for people like me to broadcast our ideas under the radar, and to do so, you need a VPN. These days, it's no longer uh, optional. There was a time, to paraphrase an old joke, when Surfing the web without with a VPN was a lot like taking a shower while wearing a raincoat. Now, these days, surfing the net without a VPN is a bit like taking a shower while wearing a plugged-in toaster. If you surf the net without a VPN, your ISP and your government can track you based on your IP address. It's not that difficult to demonstrate. I've done this a number of times before, but if you want to know... What you have to do is essentially go to a place like track my IP or TracemyIP, whatever it's called, uh, traceip.org or what'smyip.com, any of those. And you plug in your IP address and you trace the IP and it will tell you where you are. Here is my exact IP address at this precise time. Uh, my exact IP address right now is 159.48.53.176 if you want to know where that is that is essentially in the middle of uh, one of the Great Lakes uh, around about the Chicago time zone that's where I am according to you know what um, according to what my IP address says Uh, it's fair to say that's nowhere near where I actually am and that will allow you to hide your location, hide your identity and bounce around and keep on the move. And also will allow you to avoid, uh, of course, certain checks that people put on you and will allow you as well to, in practical terms, get the best deals on flights, hotels, and a number of other things where if you need to travel, you can finally travel relatively free of additional fees and charges you'd be surprised if you actually look into it how much price discrimination the travel industry can do based on just your ip address and details it's really astonishing that is probably worthy of a a separate article altogether uh, but not on my site on one of the other sites that i run so at any rate welcome once again and with the blatant advertising out of the way. Let's get on with the the, the topic of today's podcast. And this will probably be a little bit less than an hour. We'll see how we go. But in terms of what we've been seeing the last three, four weeks, it has been astonishing to watch the speed of the collapse of American hegemony in basically in Asia, in, in the Middle East as well. The consequences of the fall of Kabul and the fall of Afghanistan in general will reverberate for years and decades to come. And I believe firmly that this will greatly accelerate, hasten the end of the American Empire. Now, a lot of people, including me, including of course our beloved and dreaded uh, Supreme Dark Lord peace be unto him, Vox Day, the most merciless and terrible, have been saying things like this for a long time. This is not new. We have been arguing for some years now that the American empire will end roughly by 2033. That's his prediction. And uh, I generally support that. I generally agree with him. There are very few things upon which I disagree with our beloved and dreaded Supreme Dark Lord, peace be unto him, Vox Day, because he is, of course a Supreme Dark Lord. That's what you do with Supreme Dark Lords. You you know, a Dark Lord going to Dark Lord, and uh, in this case, our Dark Lord has a track record of being spectacularly right most of the time. Not always. Uh, especially when it comes to football predictions. Uh, when I say football, I'm talking American football, not the pansy, weak-ass European kind. And uh, I can just feel the hate from <laughs> people We listen to that sentence and we're like, what is wrong with you? European football is the only kind there is. Well, yeah, okay, but, I mean, if I'm watching a bunch of overpaid, multi-millionaire European and and South American and African, you know, Nazi boys um, prancing about on a pitch, running back and forth and taking blatant dives um, for 90 minutes, why would I want to watch that? That's not entertainment for me. So, anyway... And it's a, that's my standard rant about football, um, or soccer, as, as my American listeners would call it. In terms of what the fall of Kabul represents, there's a long-standing view in history, and I agree with this, that empires kind of collapse slowly and then all at once. And I forget exactly who it was that came up with that phrase, but it's absolutely true. This is not my phrase, it's not my theory. It's absolutely true. If you observe every empire throughout history... It's always a long period of internal decline, followed by an external shock that very clearly ends the empire almost overnight. In the case of the British Empire, you look at what happened to Britain right before World War I. The British Empire was at the absolute apex of its power. I mean, its strength was astonishing. It was completely unchallenged. Uh, across the entire length and breadth of the world the only major setback it had ever faced was in the united states the loss of the 13 colonies but actually the british maintained a very strong position in um the uh in the americas in the form of canada obviously and even had uh some interests in south america uh, obviously its interests in africa were were tremendous and the crown jewel of the British Empire was the Raj, the, the British Raj in India. And at that time, the span of the Raj in India was immense. I mean, going from basically Afghanistan, you know, modern day parts of Afghanistan, through to modern day Pakistan, through to, uh, northern India, Kashmir, uh, down south, throughout the entire Indian subcontinent, across to Nepal and Bangladesh, back then what was known as East Pakistan, uh, and all the way through to Burma and down into Singapore. That's how vast the British Raj was. And the Brits were able to administer all of that with about 100,000 civil servants. That's all it took for them to administer a population numbering, at the time, probably half a billion people, probably more than that, I think. Um, and now, obviously, they did it with extensive help from local labor, but the point is the greatest empire of all time was able to do this on a skeleton crew, and they extracted enormous amounts of wealth from that empire. The American empire finds itself in a very similar position today or you know, where it was uh, some years ago, whereby through extensive military bases around the world through diplomatic outposts, through all of these tools and arms of government, the Americans actually control an enormous swath of territory around the world. It's not an empire in a traditional sense because the military bases don't uh, conquer any territory. I mean, America has an enormous military base in Okinawa. Uh, which the Japanese, by the way, don't want there, and have been saying, and the Okinawans, the native Okinawans, have been saying for years they want America out. Um, but no one in his right mind would argue that America runs Japan because it doesn't. The the, the liberal democratic party of Japan runs Japan, um, which they have done for basically since the end of World War Two, with only very very brief interruptions for opposition parties at times of severe economic crisis. The American empire is based upon commercial interests, just as Britain's originally was. Uh, the, The reason the British empire came into being is because of the East India Trading Company. The American empire is based on commercial and cultural power. Well, that isn't working anymore. The world is rejecting, turning against American culture, because it can see that American culture is diseased. It can see that American culture is broken and fallen, corrupt to the core. Uh, If you go to parts of the world that have decisively turned against the neoliberal world order, you can see an even more fundamental rejection of American culture and American values. If you go to Russia, and I've spent a lot of time in Russia, obviously, you look at how the Russians think and how they act, these people are not interested in American ways of doing things. They just don't care about um, careerism and uh, feminism. They have no patience whatsoever for transgender ideology. I mean, I've personally witnessed... um, a gay pride event, uh, and I was there with a Russian, and she, um, she, I mean, she, she found it a lot more fun than I did because she was like, "Oh, everybody's so happy, they're having such a big party, they're having so much fun," but she was able to stand back from the good vibes, so to speak, of the event, and she was able to look at it much more analytically afterwards and say. These people are degenerate. They're crazy. They revel in their sin. And that's what the rest of the world is seeing in America. They're seeing a country reveling in sin. They're seeing a country without a core, without an identity, which has opened up its borders and refused to stand up for itself, which treats foreign invaders better than it treats its own citizens, which lectures the world, on the benefits of freedom and democracy and human rights and self-expression and yet treats its own dissident classes with utter contempt and even utter brutality and censorship. This is not worthy of America. It never was. Once you understand and realize however that America as we understand it today is essentially two separate entities. It is the empire and the nation. And when you look at the empire, you understand that the imperial interests no longer represent the core interests of the nation. Then you can understand where America is and where it is going. The American empire is essentially a very heavily Jewish-controlled, Jewish-occupied, Genuinely very secular and quite quite evil frankly uh, organization and by the way if you're wondering why I advocate getting a VPN this is why you can't this is one of the great unmentionables of the world you can't talk in the West at least about Jewish control over the media politics academia science and technology And expect to get away with it. They don't like it. They don't like it when you talk about this stuff. It's not anti-Semitic to point it out. It's just the truth. They don't like it. Real Jews, real Israeli Jews, actually find Jewish control over the United States to be a bit disheartening. They're like, this doesn't make sense. It's not a good idea. They understand, as very few people do, that when you have an oligarchic control over a foreign nation and you refuse to represent the interests of that nation, they turn against you. The Israeli Jews understand this, which is why I quite like them. They understand that, in general, they need to stick to their own lane. They don't. I mean, you know, it's Israel. Right? They, they are looking out for their own interests, so they don't always stick to their own lane. But they do a much better job of it than the Jewish hegemony in the United States. And for that matter, in much of Europe. Now Europe has much less of this problem than the US does. In the US you have the neo-clown movement, which is predominantly Jewish, uh controlling much of US foreign policy. You have a very heavily Jewish socialist left wing influenced academia influencing uh domestic policy. And this is one of the reasons why it's all gone completely crazy over there. Why there is such a sick ideology of uh, LGBTQ, WTF is this shit nonsense, which permeates society from top to bottom. What you're seeing in the US right now is, again, this sundering, this, this scattering of ashes between um the ruling class, which no longer represents the nation, and the nation itself. And you'll see this most uh, obviously with the Texas uh, fetal heartbeat law, which uh, the the Texas legislature passed overwhelmingly, it was a great idea, and I I fully support it. Of course, I mean I'm a Christian. I, I, as far as I'm concerned, life begins at conception. It's that simple. You know, I don't even have to think about that question. It's like life begins at conception. Next, or you know, whatever. It's easy for people like me. The Texas fetal heartbeat law simply says that. If a woman wants an abortion, she cannot abort her baby in Texas. I don't see the problem here. I really don't. I don't see why, given the 13 different reproductive uh, contraceptive options available to women, women can't exercise control over their own bodies. I mean, they keep saying it's a reproductive rights issue. It's about my body, my choice. That's bullshit. It never was. But... If that's the argument, women have access to something like 13 different contraceptive options, roughly speaking, if you count them all up. Men have access to about three. Uh, wear a contraceptive, and, you know, we know what that means. Um, pull out, we know what that means. Rhythm method, as it were. Um, or abstinence, and that's about it. There's, I mean, obviously there's a fourth, fourth one, which basically involves permanent, um, uh, infertility, which is to say a vasectomy. Women have access to so many more methods. They are in complete control. Once again, as always, sex is a woman's domain. Women are the gatekeepers of sex. Men are the gatekeepers of commitment. It's that simple. But women would have you believe that this new law takes away that right, takes away that uh, gatekeeping role. It does absolutely nothing of the sort. This is a sickness within society. If you were to take the same argument and you were to go to Russia in particular, and I will talk about Russia because it's the culture with which I am the most familiar, the Russians would look at this and say, okay, they don't. they, ju- they just don't care about it because for them the entire argument is nonsensical they understand that yes a woman might want to get an abortion and they're actually generally very against it. They hate the idea as a general rule. They they think it's a deeply uh, uh, wrong and immoral idea. But they also went through a long period of actually state-enforced and sanctioned abortions uh, during the, the hell times of communism. and. They're quite traumatized by the experience, so they understand that there are, you know, th- there there are no particular laws against it. But there's also a very very strong state apparatus in Russia, uh, urging women not to get abortions. The state and the church actually work together, hand in hand in Russia, to prevent women from getting abortions. In the sense of priests calling up women and saying, "Don't abort the baby. Give him to me." When he's born, but don't abort him. Don't kill your baby. Don't murder your child. Just keep him for the first breastfeeding and then give him to me. I'll take him off your hands. And you never have to see him again. And that works. If you talk to Orthodox priests in Russia, they're like, yeah, the moment a woman breastfeeds her child, she doesn't want to give him up or her up. It's amazingly effective. And this is something that Western priests and Western clergy should be doing, but they're not. Why? Because, again, you have to look at it in terms of the empire and the nation. Most Western religions, most Western churches actually within the Christian framework, operate facing the empire. They are, they embrace the world. They don't embrace the kingdom of God. When you look at it through a biblical perspective, What's happening here is not new. It's not surprising. It's not, um, in any way, different from what we see in the rest of history. The church, in general, has embraced the world, and you can see this if you go to uh, England. You'll see it with the Church of England. Uh, if you're, you know, if you were uh, anywhere in uh, London or Manchester during the the, the Gay Pride weekend long weekend for the bank holiday uh, you would see gay pride flags rainbow flags and so on flying from the tops of cathedrals of the church of england well the church of england was founded very clearly as a split away from the catholic church by henry viii because he wanted to divorce his first wife and the church the catholic church refused to countenance that and the catholic church said we will not embrace convenient divorce which it didn't for a very, very long time. I mean, I have a lot of differences with the Catholics. I I really do. I think on a number of issues, they are badly mistaken. Um, But when it comes to sticking to tradition, at least up until Second Vatican, I think they were right. The Catholic Church stuck to its guns. Henry VIII applied tremendous pressure to create his own breakaway church, and he did. The result has been the Church of England, the Anglican Church, which has been one of the most cucked-out, spineless, pathetic, useless organizations in history. The Brits love their Anglican Church. Why? Because it's completely woolly, it never really gives any strong commandments one way or another. It embraces homosexuality, it embraces sin, it embraces gay marriage, it embraces all manner of perversion. Why? Because it wants to be friendly to the world. The natural consequence is that the Anglican Church is losing people faster than you can believe. The United Kingdom used to be a 80-plus percent Christian nation. Today, it's maybe 20 percent and falling rapidly. The United States, on the other hand, is experiencing something of a revival. It's an underground revival, but it's a revival nonetheless, of evangelicals and Protestants and other believers in the word and the faith and even Catholics actually who are regaining their faith coming back to the church coming back to God and understanding that they are under the rule of foreign power because that's what the empire is that's what the American empire really is that foreign power will fall the question is how and when as for the when I don't know I don't pretend to know all I can tell you is that it is most likely going to happen between 2025 and 2030. That's what I'm seeing. 2033, I think Vox Day is uh probably accurate because the the reason he's saying 20 2033 is because he's looking at the average lifespan of fiat currencies. The United States decoupled itself from the dollar, from from gold actually from completely from gold in 1971. With the complete abandonment of the Bretton Woods system, for those who are not familiar with Bretton Woods, here is a very, 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 very brief rundown. Up until World War Two, all of the world's major currencies operated um, as gold-backed, and when you when when foreign governments did uh, transactions, you know they bought and sold, um, uh, engaged in uh, in in current account transactions, meaning trade transactions, uh gold would switch hands in bank vaults and it was it wasn't like actual gold. What would what would happen is essentially in a in a check in a ledger book, the amount of gold held in the account of the United States government in such and such bank would be debited and that amount of gold would be credited to the United Kingdom and vice versa and so on and so forth. And you know, no physical gold really changed hands. But the ownership rights of the gold in various bank vaults did. So, that made sense, but then inflationary pressures after actually World War I really, uh, caused by this catastrophic, you know, apocalyptic war which indebted and bankrupted and ruined governments around the world, plus the hyperinflationary pressures of uh, the post-war years, resulted in countries slowly abandoning the gold standard and adopting fiat currencies instead. Uh, Fiat currencies were a disaster from the outset. They've always been a disaster. I mean you cannot have a fiat currency and a well-functioning economic system. It doesn't work. What you can have is a fiat currency that everybody else uses as a standard and kind of links itself to that which is what has happened ever since then. So after World War II when the United States was clearly the the, the sole dominant power in the world, economically speaking at least. Militarily speaking, it was split between the US and the Soviet Union. Economically speaking, there was no question whatsoever that only the United States had emerged from the war with the the vast majority of its industrial and economic base untouched. The US dollar became the primary currency of the world, right? The Bretton Woods system was an agreement whereby the United States agreed with all other major powers that they would link the value of their currencies to the dollar, and the dollar would be linked to the value of gold. This idea of essentially fixed-rate exchange systems, or uh, kind of uh, banded floating rates, bounded floating rates, worked for a very long time, but it also made the world entirely hostage to US economic policy. So when the United States engaged in massive money printing in the 60s, um, and which is essentially a devaluation of the currency, everybody else suffered from inflation as well. So slowly over time, currencies began to break away from Bretton Woods, countries began to break away from it and establish their own exchange rate systems. By 1971, it was clear that the Bretton Woods exchange rate system was untenable because it imposed massive breaks upon American money printing. And, you know, even then, I mean, even during the 60s, when they were printing off money at record rates, you know, then record rates, it was still not possible to break the Bretton Woods uh, link between the U.S. dollar and gold. So, in 1971, Nixon abandoned it completely and said, I will not. You know, uh, essentially, kind of adopted the the ethos of William Jennings Bryan, and uh, said, "I will no longer crucify man on a uh, on a cross of gold." Um, the system collapsed essentially, and countries since then have managed their exchange rates uh, on a variety of different uh, regimes. Most countries have adopted freely floating exchange rates, and you know, compare themselves with the dollar, uh, which is fine. I mean, but you're still pegged to the dollar ultimately. I mean, it works, but it it still makes you highly dependent upon American economic policy rather than your own individual policy. Uh, yeah, so it doesn't make sense unless you have like freely floating currencies don't really work unless you have a reasonably stable benchmark against a me- against which to measure them. For many decades, that was the dollar. No more. The dollar's credibility is at serious risk. There there are a series of very interesting articles which have come out of late examining in post-mortem fashion the great scandemic of 2020 and asking why it is that the scandemic happened exactly at that time. Most people don't remember this right now because it's been such a crazy 18 months. Actually, two years now. In September of 2019, the repo market in the United States went bonkers. Repo rates spiked to levels they've never seen before, which indicated some very serious problems in short term, like overnight funding, and commercial paper markets followed suit as well. Overnight funding markets, which are critical for the healthy functioning of a huge range of companies. I mean pretty much every company uh, big and small uses some form of overnight lending or funding um, to secure payrolls and administrative uh, costs and essentially pay its bills until the actual money comes into the bank account. Almost every single company that depends on repo markets was affected. The Federal Reserve stepped in to support the repo market but it understood very clearly that this is a sign of severe distress because when overnight funding is affected that means that multiple companies are now suddenly unsure of whether their counterparts are going to pay their bills. And that's the truth. That's the reality of the repo market. I've worked in capital markets for a long time. This is fundamentally different from the subprime crisis. The subprime crisis actually affected a relatively small number of, of borrowers, uh, or was caused by, I should say, a relatively small number of borrowers. The reason why the subprime crisis became the crisis that it did is actually due to the very tightly interlinked nature of the system. It, essentially what happened was you had a small number of borrowers upon, which, upon whose loans were built a series of derivative chains all of which were not nearly as decoupled or as risk independent as we all thought they were. Uh, As it turns out when those loans went bad that had a knock-on effect throughout the entire economy that their risk models couldn't capture. Now without going into a digression into the mathematics of those models let's just say that the reason that happened is because they were using distributional assumptions that were way too generous. I know something about those models, Um, they're very brilliant, they're very astonishing, but they're remarkably stupid in terms of their lack of awareness of human nature. It's a great curse among the mathematically gifted modelers of the banks and of capital markets in general. They, They make fundamental assumptions about human nature which, once you put them to the test, do not work at any rate the repo market is more fundamental the subprime market blow-up affected the entire global economy the repo market blow-up would have been much much worse. Now the Federal Reserve intervened to stop that from happening there's a conspiracy theory floating around out there which I actually regard as uh, pr- quite probable in all honesty um, because on, you know, to be to be fair I mean over the last 10 years How many times have the conspiracy theorists, quote-unquote, been right? Very, very frequently. Conspiracy theories, as Voxday said, uh, or wrote yesterday on his site, conspiracy theorists should really just be called spoiler alerts at this point, or conspiracy theories should just be called spoiler alerts by now. I mean, that's really what they are, because 12 to 18 months later, it turns out, well, really less than that, um six to 18 months later, with a median of probably about nine months. Turns out they were right all along. Ah, tea. So, conspiracy theory suggests that the whole KUF crisis was a manufactured attempt to mask or pause the entire global economy while people in the background desperately scrambled to fix the underlying problems, to plug the holes in the dikes, to prevent the floods from collapsing the walls. I think there's a lot to that theory. I really do. And the more evidence we see coming out, the more we realize that the economy in 2019 was in extraordinarily bad shape. Debt, public debt was skyrocketing. Corporate debt uh, was actually shrinking. Corporate balance sheets Or I should say, that's not quite true, actually. Corporate debt was expanding across some of the biggest corporations, but they weren't using that debt to finance actual productive investments. They were using that debt primarily for stock buybacks to boost short-term returns at the expense of long-term value-producing investments. This has been a problem for many years, actually, but it's accelerated dramatically in the last 10 to 12 years of a highly financialized Uh, set of markets. The result has been zombie corporations, which have no productive value whatsoever, trading at absolutely ridiculous valuations in the stock market. And yet they're unable to make payroll, they're unable to make bank, they're unable to meet their administrative costs, but they need the repo market to do it. They're trading effectively on hype. At the moment, in a very, very frothy bubble market. The repo market shutdown was a warning sign. And at the time it was regarded as a serious warning sign. I remember, I mean, I have a good memory for these things. But then all of that got drowned out by the coup. All of 2020, the whole world economy was on lockdown. Right? While central banks and governments Printed money and spent outrageously to prop up the economy. They justified all of this on the basis of the need to keep businesses afloat, and you know, fair enough. But they justified all of this on the basis that the virus was the deadliest pandemic ever. It wasn't. It turns out the coof has a 99.8% survival rate for most people. If you're not fat, if you're not lazy, if you're taking decent care of yourself take decent amounts of vitamins and supplements, you're not going to die from the COOF. This whole notion of long COVID, which they're now threatening us with and saying, if you get COOF, you might have long-term implications. Well, okay, um, fine. But the set of symptoms is so long and so vague that it's impossible to define what is or is not long COVID. So what they're saying is effectively, you've got a disease, we can't tell you exactly what the long-term side effects are, but we're going to demand that you give up your freedoms just so you don't catch it in the first place, when there is absolutely no documented evidence of a purified strain of this virus. None. You can go look it up. Not one paper has come up with a pure isolated strain of the kuf. and the RT-PCR tests upon which they're basing all of their policies are fatally flawed. They should never have been used for the purpose they're being used they were never designed to diagnose or, uh, uh, you know, spot the presence of a particular bug or virus. In fact, if you look at the way the RT-PCR tests are designed, what you're going to realize is that they capture about 0.07% of the entire genome of an RNA virus like the COOF, which is why, apparently, according to this book that I'm reading, um, Virus Mania, uh, which is co-authored by uh, the absolutely devastatingly uh, lovely and charming Dr. Sam Bailey, uh, who's a regular feature on um, the Great Monday DAC Browser Multchers. Um, she will tell you in her videos, and the book will tell you throughout uh, the, the 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 pages that the coof itself has never been really accurately measured. It's never been spotted under an electron microscope. It's never really been accurately decoded. They've, they've come up with some sort of genome sequence, yes, absolutely. Um, but we don't know what that gene sequence actually contains because it contains random information from lots and lots of different things. That is apparently one of the reasons why the Koof test, the RTPCR test, actually has a hard time distinguishing between the CUF and the ordinary flu. Which also helps explain why the flu essentially went away during 2020 and is expected to make a significant comeback this year. Which it probably won't because what's going to happen is people will use uh, or will essentially find lots and lots of coof cases when it's really just the flu. Now, what does all this mean economically and politically speaking? The reason why the federal government in the United States and the Federal Reserve were able to get away with all of this economically was because the United States still had tremendous credibility economically speaking. You have to understand that the entire world economy as we understand it today is faith-based. It's based on faith in governments on their ability to meet their obligations. The entire US bond market, which is the largest bond market in the world, the largest, most liquid, most deep, most used bond market in the world, is predicated upon the belief that the US government will repay all of its obligations. This is a mathematical impossibility. It will not Happen. It cannot happen. It is mathematically impossible for the US to meet a hundred trillion dollars worth of future obligations. And that's, you know, depending on the time period you measure. When the United States government is already in debt over 24 trillion dollars on an economy that produces about 22 trillion. And that's, again, assuming you can trust any of the output statistics. The whole system is faith-based. What happens then when faith in the U.S. government and its ability to keep its promises disappears? The U.S. government fails to uphold an ally. The U.S. government fails to take care of its own people and pull them out of a hostile territory. What happens? Well, you're watching it happen right now. An empire built on faith will collapse suddenly and dramatically. Look at the consequences long term of what happened from the fall of Kabul. Every one of America's allies quote unquote, knows now full well that America cannot keep its promises and will not keep them. The Taiwanese are panicking because they know damned well that the United States will not risk its supercarrier battle groups to save them from China. They now understand that they have to look to regional allies to ward off the Chinese. The Chinese now know that they can operate in the South and East China Sea almost unchallenged because the United States is not capable of keeping its promises. It it now understands better than ever that the United States has failed the credibility test. The US military, it understands well, is an $800 billion dollar paper tiger soaked in battery acid. They know it. On a military budget of a fraction of that, the Chinese are now capable of challenging the United States in the Pacific almost at will. On a military budget of about 60 to 80 billion dollars, the Russians are now capable of fielding airplanes, tanks, missiles, drones. And most importantly, fighting men on the ground that are of equal, if not superior quality to their American counterparts. And here's the most important thing. The Russians aren't interested in great power games anymore. The Russians right now, if you look at their foreign policy, and there's a long article by President Putin, which I'll be posting an analysis up of uh a didactic mind uh, over the coming days. It's fascinating. It's, it's, I mean, you see how his mind works in his writing. Of course, it's been heavily vetted and checked and so on, and whatever. But, you know, check for historical accuracy and Russian point of view and so on. Yeah, fine, whatever. But if you read that article, it's absolutely fascinating to see how Putin thinks. If you look at the over, overall thrust of Russian foreign policy right now, it is basically to stay the hell out of land wars, It is to avoid being an occupying power, and it is to consolidate the power of three great Russian nations: Uh, Velikorossiya, Velikorossiya, Malorossiya, Belorossiya. Greater Russia, Small Russia, White Russia. Velikorossiya is, I mean, what we would call today Russia. You know, just Russia, Russia. Belorossiya is Belarus. You know, one of the three Russian peoples. Malorussia, now this is the interesting part. Malorussia is, little Russia, is essentially part of modern-day Ukraine. And most people don't know this, but modern-day Ukraine is actually an artificial construct. Um, It's about a 100 years old. It's not really a nation-nation in the sense that we would think of it. If you look at the Ukrainian nation and you split it into three pieces or the geography of Ukraine, it's actually an enormous country. But if you split Ukraine into three pieces, roughly thirds, you know, throughout the country, the eastern third is actually Russian. It's about 17% of the population. Most of them speak Russian. They are, they are ethnically Russian. They identify themselves as Russian. They are Russians. The middle third is properly Ukrainian, but actually they have more in common with the Russians than they do anybody else. The western third is... Properly more like Polish, Lithuanian, Central European, you know. It's very much a Frankenstein nation. It was stitched together from various different pieces, but the, it, it doesn't have a strong central identity. Putin's goal is to consolidate power over those three Russian nations, which is why even though each one is different and has different government, He understands that culturally they're basically the same country. And he wants to keep them as the same country. He wants them to operate in harmony with each other. Which is why he keeps saying to the Ukrainian people, we're not your enemy. We're not trying to hurt you. We're not trying to attack you. We don't want to conquer you. We want to be your friend, but your government keeps getting in the way. And he's right. He's actually right about that. I agree with him 100% about this fact. You look at uh, Belarus. Belarus is controlled by one man and has been, you know, basically since the fall of the uh, fall of the Soviet Union, Lukashenko. Uh, Lukashenko is only interested in preserving his own power. But culturally speaking, the people of Belarus are Russians. I mean, they have their own distinct culture, yes, but they are they are part of the Russian tradition. This is what Putin concerns himself with: keeping Russia economically secure, keeping Russia militarily strong, keeping Russia politically free, and reuniting this ancient alliance of Russian peoples, which dates back actually to the foundation of the entire Russian identity, essentially all the way back to uh, 862 and uh, the foundation of the Kievan Rus, that kingdom, that huge kingdom, Um, centered in Kiev by uh, Prince Rurik of uh, Novgorod. Um, That is how far back this stretches. This is the Russian approach. The Chinese approach is fundamentally different. Um, This is where I disagree with Vox Day on two points. His first point is that the Chinese essentially just want to be left alone to kind of consolidate their power and do as they please. I disagree with that. The Chinese are very much interested in expanding militarily and economically. Xi Jinping is an emperor. He is an emperor with imperial ambitions, and he wants to expand China outwards and recapture China's um, historical reputation as Zhonggu, Middle Kingdom. I mean, that's exactly how the Chinese refer to themselves. Zhonggu Ren. They refer to themselves as the people of the Middle Kingdom, even to this day. They believe they have a very, very racist, ethnocentric view of themselves. And, you know, it's racist. I mean, I'm just pointing it out. It's like it is pejorative, but it's also true. They are racist in the sense that they think everybody else is essentially worthless and that China is the center of the world. They have never abandoned this point of view through 5000 years. Their belief in their own primacy is so strong and so self-assured that they will not tolerate any challenge to it. They've had to suppress that belief for some time, a couple of centuries, thanks to Western invasion and repeated humiliation of China. But that fundamental belief has never gone away. So they are looking forward to restoring their place of pride in the world. They're going to do it. They are going to expand. They are looking to expand uh, into the Spratly Islands, which will directly threaten Japan. Uh, they have invaded Japan repeatedly in the past. By the way, I mean under the Mongols, yes, you know, foreign power occupied China, invaded Japan, etc. Fine, whatever. But they have invaded Japan. They ha- they do still have a very strong animus against the Japanese from the Japanese invasion of Manchuria preceding World War II. They will seek to reconquer Taiwan. Why? Well, you know. I mean, it's a good question. It's like Formosa was never an important part of of the Chinese empire. But they've never gotten over the fact that Chiang Kai-shek and his Kuomintang fled China, established themselves in Taiwan, and basically became an independent, successful nation. With American support, yes, but eventually became a very successful nation in their own right. The Chinese leadership has never gotten over that. They've never gotten over their losses in south of China. I mean, basically, if you go down south, most people don't realize that China actually invaded Vietnam, you know, um, once Vietnam was reunited north and south. When the north conquered the south, the Chinese actually invaded Vietnam in the late 70s, got their butts kicked, actually. The NVA absolutely humiliated the Chinese. The Chinese military, for all of its power and its strength, is, is also something of a paper tiger. Its record in actual combat is extremely poor. It's just less of a paper tiger and are significantly and fundamentally less idiotic than the American military, because they're not interested in playing woke diversity games, they're interested in fighting. The Chinese military is not, I believe, a particularly combat capable force, but it doesn't need to be. It just needs to be less dumb and less catastrophically stupid and less pathetic than the American military. And these days, that's not a tall order, in all honesty. If a bunch of ragheads in Afghanistan in the mountains could beat the crap out of the American military for 20 years, that's the perception, then the Chinese can do it too. And again, here's the important thing. America has never lost a major battle with the Taliban. It's never even lost a minor battle with the Taliban. Every time that U.S. troops and the Taliban have engaged in direct combat, pretty much, the Americans have come out on top. Why? Because the American military has warfighters who are capable of fighting. They have excellent equipment. They have excellent intelligence. They have the skills, the the firepower, and the ability to win. They're just very, very poorly led with terrible tactical doctrine. That's the truth of it. When the American empire falls, it will fall in a very big hurry and there will be one or two trigger points that decimate the whole thing. That's all it's going to take. The invasion of Taiwan is almost a historic, uh, almost a certainty at this point. The Chinese know that the Americans will not intervene. The evacuation of American presence from the Middle East is almost a certainty at this point. The Russians know and the Arabs know that the only thing keeping the Americans there is oil. If the Americans lose their ability to maintain control over that oil, they will leave. That will leave all of the Arab nations, every one of them, in a serious pickle. All of the Gulf nations, I should say. Saudi Arabia, Qatar, the UAE, uh, all of those Bahrain, Kuwait, uh, who else? Well, Iraq, obviously, uh, Jordan to a great extent, uh, all of these client states of the United States of America will be militarily bereft of support. The regimes that maintain power in those countries are not popular in general. Jordan is something of an exception, but Saudi Arabia, for instance, Mohammed bin Salman, I think, is doing some remarkable work, although he's not a nice man. He's doing some remarkable work to try to turn his country around. He seems to be quite popular among the young. I'm not sure he's particularly popular among the older segment of the population who are much more resistant to change. It remains to be seen whether the, the House of Saud will be able to survive because, very briefly, the House of Saud and uh, the House of Wahhab uh, other political and religious entities that control Saudi Arabia. This is due to a power sharing agreement that they came up with like way back about 300 years ago between the Saudis, between the house of the, the leader of the house of Saud and the leader of the Wahhab reform movement, uh, which preaches a very radical, which is to say fundamentalist view of Islam. That power sharing agreement is still in force today, but it's not a, a widely like legitimized popular power sharing agreement. It's just what came into being. Once American power pulls out of that region, what do you think is gonna happen? Massive power vacuum, massive wars, massive civil unrest, it's going to happen in that region. What do you think is gonna happen in Western Europe when the core member of NATO becomes militarily enfeebled? NATO, as a power, will collapse. We know this. I mean, none of the other NATO countries are living up to their obligations, pretty much. Turkey, which is one of the very few NATO powers that can actually fight, is abandoning U.S. Um, weapons and material and kind of charting its own course. The Koreans in uh, you know, are threatened by China. They're developing their own stealth fighters and carrier technology. We're seeing a radical splintering of the world order, and it's necessary. We have lived too long under the rule of an ang- what a lot of right-wing types call it the Anglo-Zionist empire. And I don't go that far, but it's hard not to, right? Because that's actually pretty close to the truth. A Zionist, Jewish-occupied nation, overwhelmingly run by Jews. Not completely, but overwhelmingly so. And I'm not saying this is a knock against Jews themselves. I think the people in power who have let themselves be controlled by these interests, secular Jews, you know, looking out for themselves and their own interests rather than the interests of the nation, are themselves culpable. A lot of them are nominally Christian, quote-unquote, Nancy Pelosi being so-called Catholic herself, Joe Biden as well being so-called Catholic. These people are corrupt to the core. They are servants of the prince of this world, just like the secular Jews around them are servants of the prince of this world. The actual Orthodox Jews living in the United States just basically want to worship their god, and that's fine, you know, let them. They don't really seek to be in control of anything as long as they don't harm the interests of Israel. But the occupying empire... That rules over the American nation is going to fall. And when it falls, it will be sudden and terrifying. And it will probably fall sometime between 2025 and 2030. I expect the 2025 election for the, or 2024 election for the president to be a pivotal event. I do not believe that a Republican will win that election. We are already seeing the first stirrings of another attempt at massive electoral fraud in the USA. 24, it's already happening with 22, for the midterms, the Democrats will not willingly give up power, which means that the vote is meaningless in the United States, which means that a massive pressure release valve no longer works. When people see that they they are occupied by a foreign power and there is no way for them to represent their own interests to that power, they will eventually rise up. Just because it hasn't happened in the past, does not mean it will not happen in the future. This is the reality of history. Oppressed and angry peoples, who are not distracted by bread and circuses, will rise up in revolt. And eventually, a weakened empire can no longer suppress those revolts, and it will fall. Empires fall from internal dissension before they are ever conquered externally. This is the fate of the US empire. It will fall it will be destroyed and that's a good thing in all honesty because of what it has done with its imperial status the united states has utterly squandered the power and prestige that it won after the cold war and it is time for it to end what comes next i don't know hopefully it will be a little bit better and a little bit less disastrous and a little bit less disgusting than what preceded it only time will tell Well, that is all for this episode of Didactic Mind. hope you enjoyed it. Please, as always, like, comment, share, and subscribe if you have not done so already. Make sure you stop by the site, subscribe via my mailing list. Make sure you protect yourself from big tech. All the links that you need are down below. I hope to have some exciting new developments uh, on the site and through other projects over the coming weeks. I will keep you updated, and hopefully we will resume a more regular podcasting podcasting schedule over the coming days. Uh, I know it's been a while since I've done this regularly, but you know, events in my personal life have gotten in the way, um, much to my delight, actually. Uh, It's been fun doing other things for a while, but uh, if you can hear dogs barking, that's just um, the garden outside uh, my current flat. Um, But stay well, uh, stay safe, be careful out there, things are going to get very messy in a very big hurry. And I will see you on the next one. This has been Didactic Mind, episode 83, The Scattering of the Ashes. And this is Didact, signing off.